0: Welcome to the Bridging History Podcast brought to you by the Minnesota Council for History Education. I am Matt Moore, a high school history teacher from Mankato,
1: Minnesota. And I'm Eric Beckman, a high school history teacher from St. Paul, Minnesota.
0: And today on the podcast, we are going to be taking a look at uh, what it would be like to be a brand new teacher in US or world history right now, uh, and what tips Eric and I would share with with a new teacher. So it's the we're recording this. It's the summer of 2021 and we're a month and a half away here from kicking things off with a new school year. Uh, There is an interesting job market in Minnesota right now. There's probably a a lot of probably going to be a lot of new teachers this upcoming year. And so we're thinking about you know, do's and don'ts. What What are some tips and recommendations we would have for for new teachers? I guess if Eric and I could get in a time machine and go back to our our first years of teaching, what uh, advice or tips might we give ourselves uh,
1: uh-huh.
0: if we had the resources of twenty twenty one at our
1: fingertips? Also, so um, the Soviet the Soviet Union still existed when I started teaching, <laughs> so yeah. that changes things.
0: You're right. So, uh, so we will be, uh, let's start with Eric. What are some, what are some do's, some, some tips you have for a new, uh, U S or world history teacher?
1: Um, I think it's important to do a, you know, a, a basic overview plan. I know that's one of the things that, uh, Kyle Ward at, at Mankato state, Minnesota state Mankato stresses with his, uh, pre-service teachers, but to have, A sense of like what are the kind of the units that you want to go through and then in a world history perspective from a world history perspective to think of those um in terms of connections as much as possible so if you look at your your units you don't want to structure that as like a western civilization sequence or what um one writer's called the european tunnel of time just following one thing after another, because other parts of the world won't fit into that and it'll be harder to, to bring them in. But to look at the standards or whatever your district curriculum is and then think of chunks of what you're gonna be doing, so you have so you have a sense of, of what you want to go through. And I think that's true for US history as well.
0: Yeah, and, and would you say, um... You know, so, so a new teacher is going to, you know, they're going to get their, uh, they're going to get it in their classroom and they're probably going to be given a stack of textbooks and they're going to say, here, you know, here's the classes that you're teaching. Um, there's a lot of different opinions about, about textbooks. So what, what do you, what advice would you have for a new teacher with, uh, in regards to their textbooks that they're going to be receiving?
1: Yeah, I think in any history class, it's best to think of the textbook as a resource. I'm not a person who, like, thinks that it's necessarily helpful, or at least that it's necessary to ditch the textbook, although it's also, on the other hand, Goldilocks situation, on the other hand, the textbook is not the class. So, you know, you want that in between. It's a resource, but it's, but it's not the class. One thing, especially I think in world history, is when you look at the content that's laid out in the... The textbook is just going to be a lot of information, of course. And so, some way that a new teacher can kind of pan out and think more thematically or think in terms of larger developments as um, the, the main content. So, say, what I mean by that is you're thinking about like global connections in the 14 and 1500s, like in a world history class. So instead of thinking of that as like the age of discovery or slightly better age of exploration, really, it's about sailing. And so you want students to know that there are these global connections that are happening during this time. And so that's the big idea. And then the student does not need to know, and, and they won't master, even if you think they need to know it, every detail that's a part of that larger development. So the more that someone can look at the textbook and then try to pan out to see what are the bigger developments that she will communicate to students, and then think of the various events as examples
0: And and so, you know, I'm mostly a U.S. history teacher. You teach mostly world history. One of the things that U.S. history teachers always complain about is never having enough time to teach everything and mm-hmm. struggling to, you know, get through all of the uh, all of the big topics. Um, but it, whenever U.S. history teachers complain about that, world history teachers come along and, and just chuckle. So. So I'm wondering, you're a seasoned vet in the world in the field of world history. What little uh, tricks have you come up with when deciding, you know, the 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 coverage dilemmas yeah. of like what yeah. to teach, what to skip, what to spend a lot of time on? That's something a new teacher is going to struggle with. So what what little, uh, um, I guess, tips have you found to work for yourself?
1: Yeah, and I would preface any thoughts I have with the, the fact that the pandemic teaching has really, you know brought that into stark relief like it has with so many other things. Because I covered, you know, less, you know, yeah. topics, fewer topics, covered fewer topics over the last year and a half than the year and a half previous to that for sure. And I, I know that's basically true for all of us. So so that's one thing is just to know that you have to dare to omit. That's one way I've heard it put. I know the, the president of the World History Association, Laura Mitchell at UC Irvine, I don't think she invented that, but she does like to say it and it is true. And she's a great historian and teacher. Um so yeah, so dare to omit that you're not going to cover everything. Like even if you even if you're going to cover everything, then the kids won't remember it. Um, I used to teach AP European history, um, which is a class that has, you know, a lot of pros and cons. And I remember one of my best students, like literally ever, um, you know, the next year, not remembering much about the Russian Revolution. And she came to talk to me about a project she was doing. I'm like, well, well we covered this in class, and I'm sure she did very well on the test. But that doesn't mean that stuff's been committed long-term. So I know that's something that teachers will hear in their pre-service teaching, but it's really true. Like, so you want to think about what are the big picture things, and then you want to select, select, select yeah. what your examples are going to be. Um, and then I would... I would say in terms of putting things together to avoid Eurocentrism, one of my kind of rules of rules of thumb, if you will, is if you have something, an event that's centered in one one region, like we could think of um, that age of sale, sailing, connections, it's gonna be some non European content there. But that's gonna be a lot of European content. And then if the next thing you do might also have a lot of European content, then the third the thing that comes after that, that shouldn't. So kind of think about creating a quilt, if you will, of things that you're selecting so that you're covering different parts of the world.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's a good, that's a good visualization. We, we both, we do a lot of work in the, in the college board AP realm and, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're in the embedded in AP world history. I'm in AP US history field. And since the redesign, I don't know when that was 2015 or so that there has been an emphasis on, um, uh, a couple different historical thinking skills, but one that definitely bridges U.S. and world history is is, or I guess two, comparison and then continuity and change over time. Um, and I think that offers, you know, an important, um, I guess, a little uh, a weapon you can use to determine you know what to cut. Uh, I get maybe a utensil would be a better idea. Like if you if you have an event, but you can't make any comparisons with it, or if you can't do any continuity or change analysis with it, maybe, maybe it is something you shouldn't spend the most time on.
1: Right. Right. And that doesn't mean it's not important in and of itself. We won't, this is a survey. We won't, you won't cover, go over, dig into everything that is important in, in any of these fields. I mean, you know, somebody. There's topics that we're choosing to omit that people have dedicated their entire careers to studying, and that, and that doesn't mean that that work is in vain. It's just maybe not going to fit into this class. So, so mm-hmm. how do you make those kinds of decisions in your U.S. history classes?
0: Uh, so, you know, I guess starting with standards a lot, um, looking at. With with the AP, you know, with I guess if a teacher is teaching a non AP class, they have a lot more freedom. They can take a look at the state standards. Um, But in the state of Minnesota, where we teach, there is no big end of the year exam uh, like there might be in New York. Uh, You know, so there's a there's a bit more flexibility there for a teacher. But within the world of AP, you probably want to take a look at the finished exam uh, over the last few years, what those look like. Uh, take a look at the curriculum framework to see what's in there uh, and, and let that be your guide. But I, I think one of the things I've learned is that it's okay to let go of, um, you know, in the past, maybe I'll just, one illustrative example would be the New Deal. So in the past, I was worried about covering all of these various New Deal programs Uh, But that takes time. And there's so many acronyms to juggle. (laughs) It's like, it's hard for a high school kid to keep all that straight. And it's hard to um, try to say to a kid that every single one of those programs mattered just as much as the other. Um, And I think what, what I've discovered with the redesign for APOS history is it can, can, can a kid remember like one new deal program. It really it's about using one as an example. You know, so can they? So, so for a teacher, you don't have to teach every New Deal program. You really, um, you know, the light bulb moment for me was that they really just need a couple that they would be able to hold on to at the end of the year that they could use as an example if if uh, they're asked a question about the New Deal on a on a short answer question. So,
1: yeah, um, for sure, that's the same in in all the histories I think. Um, from looking at the different exams. And it really is a thing. I tell students um, in my class, and I do some tutoring when I'm tutoring students. I tell them, like, you are so much better off knowing half the material that you think you need to know, but knowing how to apply it and understanding it really well um, than you are knowing, you know, right. twice as much as your friend, but really Perfect. only having a surface understanding of it. The thing they yeah. may have to know in your example is they need to know what the new deal was.
0: Yeah. But then
1: from there, um, they, you know, whatever example students would use could work. So one students using the CCC and the students sitting next to them in the same testing rooms using FDIC, um, yeah. well, they could both score the exact same point on the, the um, exam, even if the other one doesn't know about that. Right. It's also important when you look at those AP exams to, to realize that 75% correct is going to be a five. Yeah. Um, so even, so it's like, there's two layers to this with the pressure for coverage that AP exams can create. And the one is that students need to know the big ideas and be able to recognize those ideas and they see an example of it and give an example of it if they're writing. Right. But then the second thing is they don't have to get all the points, um, in order to get the highest score. And and that's important in terms of taking pressure off of everybody. And that's also kind of by design. So it means if one class covered one topic really well, but a student was in a class, a different class, that covered another topic better, those students can both succeed. Yep. So it's, it really is, it seems inhumane that these smart kids who work hard are going to take this test where they get like a quarter of the questions wrong. They're not used to that. But it really is, in some ways, forgiving because then you don't have to be an expert at everything
0: right that, that that's a good that's a good mantra you know to, to for a new teacher don't you don't have to be an expert at everything um right. let's talk resources real quick like what mm-hmm. um if you want to name anything name brand anything i i would say one one resource i would share with a new teacher would be um the stanford history education groups reading like a historian curriculum i think would be my number one resource that i would share with any new middle school high school i would even share with elementary history teacher it doesn't matter what you're teaching us world Um, what i like so much about them is just the design of the lessons i think once you do a couple of them you pretty much figure out what a good history lesson is It, it starts with a good question and then it moves into having students investigate a variety of sources that can be used to answer that big uh open-ended compelling question. And they they what I like about them is that they are uh, the sources are well edited, they're approachable, they're engaging. Um it does, it, and the lessons don't take too long. The lessons all take, you know, one day, maybe two days maximum to complete. Mm-hmm. Um and so I think if a new teacher just got a feel for a couple of those lessons, they they could then go forward and they, the SHAG group, Stanford History Education Group, has a ton of lessons they could use. But I think once they get a feel for the, the design, then a, a new teacher could be off and running in designing their own lessons around, you know, things
1: that they're passionate about or deeply knowledgeable about.
0: So that would be my plug. How about for you?
1: Yes. Well, I would second that. There's fewer history lessons on there and they are growing so that started as a u.s history education dissertation and that person was that so there's more u.s history lessons than there are world history lessons um but the world history lessons um would also be would be good for all the same reasons and i do like the fact that it's not a program you have to adopt meaning like you can just do one and then you can adapt them so that works. I think you can also use that as a way to unlock your textbook as a resource using those skills. So the idea would be that you're developing disciplinary thinking with the students using the Shag resources. And then you can, like you were saying, Matt, you can turn that loose on an illustration in the textbook or, you know, a primary source that's in the textbook or even looking at the textbook itself as one source and then comparing it to something else. Um, In terms of content, a lot of times world history teachers will, people coming in won't be as familiar. There's so many different things that you might go ahead and look at. And so I think um, Asia for Educators is a world history site, or is is what it is, Asia for Educators. It's mostly East Asia. You'll find more there on um, China, Japan, Korea. Southeast Asia also, and then a little less on South Asia, you know, India. So, but that's a good source. And there's also a, a new open education resource called World History Commons. It's all one word, or you can just obviously use the Internet search machines to look for World History Commons. And that has lessons and website reviews and links. Um, to primary sources that are on there. And that's growing. Like there's things are being assembled. This is in its second year now, of course, with the pandemic interruption and whatnot, slowing things down. There are a lot of really good resources there. And again, I would say that having a, starting a lesson with a primary source. So if you're a, a brand new teacher and you're teaching several preps, I think it's all right just to think every single day we're going to start, at least most days, we're going to start with a source. We're going to look at an image, a primary source image. We're going to look at a short text or an excerpt. Just think that's like that's like the evergreen lesson. Like you can always do that. You can. It's always appropriate to look at yeah. a source and talk about it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's a great tip. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I have one more that I just thought of for resources, and that would be I was thinking back to, you know, when I started teaching, one thing I really struggled with was uh, assessments. And, I, and, and the default, I think, for a lot of people is just multiple choice tests uh, for history classes and and or really long essays. Uh, and those are about, you know, the, the two things that people are familiar with, that, that that's how they were tested in school and college. Um, with the redesign of the AP curriculum, one of the things that they did with AP US and AP World and AP Euro uh, is they introduced this new type of assessment called a short answer question or an SAQ. And I have fallen in love with that that assessment. I, I have implemented that type of assessment in, in my other electives. I use it now uh, in sociology. I, I got rid of all my multiple choice sets in sociology and just use SAQs. Um, I, I love using it in APUS history. Uh, and I think, again, if people were to just see a few of them, they would get the idea of what they are, and then how how easily they are to implement uh, in any class, and how easy they are to write, how easy they are to grade, uh, and I think they're just they're much better uh, checks for understanding. For you know, did your students follow the activity? Did they understand the reading? Um, can they interpret a chart? Can they uh, can they analyze a cartoon? So if you just go, go online and search for APS history, short answer questions or Euro short answer questions, if you go to the college board's website, they publish their um, exams every year and you'll see that, uh, you know, there's four of them on every single APUS history exam. So you'll get a, a wide variety of what they look like, but they're often asking students to explain cause and effect of things. So, um, and they might often contain a visual too. Uh, so easy to find a visual in your textbook to use as a, as a prompt for those SAQs. Um, what, what's your take on those SAQs, Eric? Yeah.
1: Oh, I like those a lot. And right, you can then use the, the, the stems, if you will, or the frame of the question that they're asking. The one thing I like about those is that it encourages students to write um, focused encourage them to focus their writing so they need to have an example they need to be specific um and they need to do some kind of analysis and so I would echo what you're saying in the sense that students don't necessarily have to write a lot in order for them to show they understand and they're going to show that they understand when they can make some kind of connection whether that's through causation or comparison or continuity or cha- and cha- or change over time. So when they start with something, a source, say, and then they apply it to something else they've learned in class, it's then that connection and drawing a conclusion from it. Now, there will be pushback from this because some students will not be used to that happening. They'll be like, well, I thought I just had to memorize some stuff for 15 minutes. Yeah and then write it down, I'm like, no, no, you don't, or I thought, you know, I could just look it up, like, you know, like online, um, right, um, you need to be able to do something with the information, you know, that's that disciplinary thinking piece, i also say this in terms of like, te- you know, pandemic teaching, like I pretty much, I was using, um, I pretty much didn't do any multiple choice assessments, I had, um, I used Moodle, an online platform but there's others where students can do like self-correcting tests and allow them to retake them and to open everything so that wound up to be more like almost like a, you know that's a learning activity but I didn't do any like you know high stakes multiple choice tests yeah um and I I, I absolutely do not feel like I have less of an idea of what students know right as as you know from like having just sort of skipped that during the pandemic or during the online teaching phase yeah so i think when we went back in class i was like "Man, i don't really need to do this i think
0: i think what we can do is we can um, put some links in the show notes for people
1: uh, Mm -hmm.
0: so they they can see examples of what we're talking about so we'll link to the asia for educators and uh, shag lessons and uh short answer questions um but, but how about for like don'ts so we covered some some good tips some do's how about some uh things you would encourage a new teacher to avoid.
1: To avoid doing. Um I would encourage people to, you know, avoid I, I think w I think we have one of the same avoids. <laughs> so I'll say it then I'll let you get your, your thoughts on it. Okay. And and that is that um simulations can be very powerful and as a result they can be fairly Dangerous, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And so I would encourage people with any kind of powerful learning strategy or anything that is fun for the students to do. Like, I'm pro fun. I would also say, though, that you want to consider what are students actually learning? Yeah. Like, and is that something that you need to use such a powerful strategy for? Right. Um, yeah, and I, I, I'll let you follow up on that. I have one other do
0: Yeah. Well, I, I don't like them because I am a fun hater. You know, I do hate having fun in my, <laughs> in my classes, but um, my no, I think they're, they're very no. attractive. I, I, when I started teaching, I, once I found a few of them, I was like, these are the best things ever. I want to teach a class where oh, the only thing I'm doing is simulations. They're so, they're so much fun. Um, the students are, are very engaged. But then I started thinking about them more critically, and, and then you really, there's, there's a, there, they can be a, very problematic. And one of the things I think in a history class that can be very problematic about them is that they often will ask students to take on the role of historic actors or historic groups that are in themselves problematic. And, you know, so you might end up with a situation where a student is. Um, pretending to be a pro-slavery senator from the south and you're having a simulation about the 1850s and the political tension there and do you really want to have a kid um you know like earning their grade by uh, by taking a john c calhoun position on an issue a pro-slavery position on an issue that's not going to look good like that could probably lead to a scandal uh you know that that uh you would want to avoid um So the other thing is just pedagogically, they, once, you know, once you do a couple of them, you find out how difficult they can be to run. Like, um, any alteration of your schedule can throw things out of whack. Kids being gone can really mess things up. Um, finding ways to support students who have IEPs and 504s in these simulations can be very difficult. So I would say get, uh, you know, get a year or two under your belt before um you know try some other things first but i would say avoid diving in too deep with with simulations in a in a history class so
1: those are that would
0: be that would be my big dump.
1: right you can think of it this way if you want if you want the class to understand pro-slavery positions having students read an excerpt from john c calhoun is going to be better than having his ideas voiced by a 15-year-old.
0: <laughs> I couldn't put it any better. Yes, that's the that's the key takeaway. So I think I you know, if you're in an econ classroom, you you might like I know econ teachers have a ton of simulations and they they are uh, incredibly engaging, but mm-hmm. there's just a whole set of issues that I think econ the econ world doesn't have to wrestle with that the, uh, you know, the history world does. So tread carefully when you take a look at those simulations, the other learning activity, I would recommend just kind of avoiding and you'll probably see a lot of it. If you just search online for like cold war lesson plan or you're on Pinterest or you're on teachers pay teachers, one of the popular genres of lessons that will come up is like a web quest. Um, and I have found that those are often like where the simulations, the kids love those, the web quests, they don't, (laughs) Those can often be incredibly dry, incredibly boring, uh, and just painful learning activities. So take those, uh, uh, take a close look at those before you implement anything that says WebQuest on it. That's my final don't, Eric. Do you have any others?
1: I would say my last don't, which relates to the simulation thing, is to like, don't do things that are going to make particular kids in class uncomfortable. Students, or, or feel unsafe is really better. Students can be a little bit uncomfortable in terms of like having their ideas challenged. But you don't, it's, it's hard in world history because there are topics where, well, in U.S. history too, it's the same, where there's images especially that are examples of stereotypes from the time, which can often be quite vicious. Like you can't say American mm. political yeah. cartoons, like around yeah. the time of the annexation of the Philippines is when I can yes. think of right away. I mean, it, and so you want to think about how that's going to affect different students differently. Everyone's not going to be affected the same way. And the image, once it's out there, especially if you're posting it online, students are going to be seeing it unmediated. And that is, there's just no way around the fact that that is not going to affect everybody the same. Now, it doesn't mean you should shy away from those topics, quite the opposite, but you should think about the immediate impact. So don't use the most I guess my don't would be, even though the most shocking image will get the eyeballs on the screen or on the book or on the paper, you should really consider the differential impact on the students in your classroom Yeah, and the, stu- and the people they might have in their life. There's, you know, Your class might appear not to be diverse, say, ethnically or racially, but might be more, more diverse in their extended families than, than you realize you start to get to know families and kids more right
0: yeah powerful thought there so we um we'll kind of wrap things up here we realize you know those are just tip of the iceberg of tips that we have we should also acknowledge the context uh since historians are so obsessed with context right That, that we're recording this in the summer of 2021 and you know Critical race theory, I think, is the big thing that is lurking in the background that a lot of teachers probably have questions about. Like, how am I going to tackle this, this, uh, this beast in this upcoming school year? So we're going to probably touch on that in a later episode. We'll we'll save some critical race theory thoughts and conversations for a later episode, which gives you the uh, all the greater incentive to subscribe to this podcast and follow us, so you can uh, catch all of our new episodes whenever those come out. But uh, in wrapping this one up, Eric, do you have any last tips?
1: Well, my uh, just in general, like plan big picture and then execute in your classroom based on examples.
0: Perfect. And, and I guess finally, uh, you know, have fun, try things out, be, be okay with failing, learn from your failures. Um, I'll, I'll, end, I'll end with my, one of my last tips is a tip my uncle gave me, which was just if you can get the kids to laugh every day, uh, you're golden, you know. So um, sometimes there are things that are, you know, more important than the content and that's forming a connection with students and, and if you can do that then then uh, your job is going to be much easier so we'll uh, we'll end there uh, thanks for thanks for listening to our podcast go ahead uh, rate us subscribe and you'll catch all of our new episodes with that we will uh, we'll see you next time till next time